Welcome to the latest episode of Supercharged, the Change and Comms podcast. I'm Chris Bradley, and as always, I'm here with my co-host, Pete Hodges. And we're super pleased in this episode to be joined by Michaela Murray from LaFosse Associates. This episode is titled Recruiting for Change. Michaela is a senior consultant leading the higher education practice of change and transformation at LaFosse Associates. She's worked in recruitment for over six years, and LaFosse are an end-to-end solutions-based business primarily focused on technology, digital, finance, and change recruitment. They also have an outcomes-based solutions arm and train and deploy a tech academy called Futureproof, which helps bridge the tech skills gap. Hi, Pete. Hey, how you doing? Good, thank you. And hi, Michaela. Welcome. It's so great you've joined us. Hi, boss. Thank you so much for having me on. So I'm going to get straight into the first question I've got here for you, um, which is just a bit of a general introduction, really. See, what are the market trends in recruitment at the moment? What are you seeing out there in the in the field? I think across. This the spectrum, it's been incredibly candidate driven, um, where candidates are having the, the pick of the bunch, where there's obviously such a demand for skill set, especially in both contract and perm, but in the change and transformation world. Um, and we're seeing a lot of candidates basically have an option of deciding what they want to do next. And um, in, in the last kind of um, half of the year, over in, in, our, in our team anyway, we've seen like 30% of our offers not landing because people are being counter-offered by their current employer. And we're seeing that you know, a huge spike and, and people are actually taking that. Obviously, it leads a little bit to the, unsta- you know, the unstability in the, in the economy at the moment and how that impacts people's decision-making. Um, but salary is salary's key and money is definitely talking here at this point in time. So are you finding that there's more people looking at interim work or permanent work at the moment in this space um i would say it sits on both so if you're already permanent you're still you know looking for the stability of perm and and to move you really want that stability um in contract it stays the same people are keen to secure contracts but ideally things nothing less than six months for the obvious of where we're currently sitting in, in the economy, people don't want to be taking short gigs in case you know something you know suddenly changes and, and they're out of work for a period of time. You know, flashing back to 2020 when the pandemic hit and you know how people were impacted. And um, there is an interest for people to move into per, into the contract market from perm. The one thing that tends to slow that process down is if you've got a really lengthy notice period, but there is yeah. demand for contractors. So it is it's quite an it is an enticing industry or a market to move into especially from a, an earnings potential do you, you find that a lot of these roles are still in the ir35 and and is that putting people off in the public sector no i mean the public sector has seen the ir35 um legislation in place since about 2016 thereabouts um and it hit the public sector first and and hardest and i think if we flash back to that and most people will remember the when people were deemed inside and had been previously outside and you know there was a mass exodus and people rushed to try and get into the the private sector but um it's still it's hit the private sector since i think last year once they once they came out of the full lockdown kind of lifestyle they they decided to go ahead with it and um, some businesses have done well to not just blanket decision making IR35 and some people were quite happy to move into IR35 and flex between both I haven't seen a, um, a huge pushback on if it's an inside role. Businesses are more educated now on if a role is inside for, for the actual reasons, because, you know, it's it's very comparable to an employee position. They're realising that you will have to pay that contractor more because 
in order to kind of counteract the, their tax, what they're losing, etc. So it's an element of an education piece that's kind of happened. And um, obviously the, the announcement that there was going to be an IR35 reform sent shockwaves. Everyone was really excited, thinking this is great. Um, it was a little bit maybe too good to be true. And, and it's obviously come out now that that's not going to happen. I wasn't surprised, to be very honest. I didn't think that. It was quite a big statement let's say um, I think a lot of that budget was too good to be true to be fair so <laughs> yeah so yeah so I, I think it's I think it's okay people have accepted it now um you know you if you're really hell-bent on not going inside then people do just say I only want to work um, outside and we'll happily wait if that's what the what the case means so yeah it's not being too bad just to go back to a question around market trends, I'm interested in, so you've worked in, in recruitment for six years, which is mm. yeah, like it's long enough to give you an idea of what it was like before the pandemic, during the pandemic and now. And I'm, I'm really interested in, I mean, we're far enough, I think, out of the pandemic now, although I'm not sure technically we, we are, I'm not sure. But so how are you seeing things shift now that we're going into more economic uncertainty versus the kind of challenges that you had in the pandemic we were literally talking about this the other day about like you know what job flow is like from our perspective because it's not as good as six months ago when when we were kind of coming out of the pandemic everyone was like back on in terms of projects with kicking off transformations if we even look at the university sector which was massively where I recruit into they all went wild because of the fact that we needed to create digital campuses and and that experience for students suddenly became paramount and, and the number one priority as did things around cyber security etc cetera, etc cetera. so there was loads of different types of transformations that kind of now that they knew we were kind of coming out of the the worst of it hopefully that said to kick off and so it was incredibly busy from I would safely say kind of 2021 up until about July June time kind of just before the summer season hits which is typically quite a quiet time in the contract world I'd say um, and now it's definitely in terms of jobs, business, business critical. So things like transformations that are sitting around cybersecurity and that sort of world, they're the kind of things that are definitely going ahead. But other types of change, so maybe upgrading of a system that's not necessarily business critical or changing the processes of how in the ways of working, again, being paired back, not as much money being pumped into it because they're looking at projections of what's going to happen and there is definitely uncertainty in the market and candidates are making that known themselves and how they make decisions but from a client perspective it's also how they go about and what they're looking to recruit for it is those business critical roles and and the projects and programs that kind of feed into them uh, so other than cybersecurity, what are you seeing that people are, are looking for what type of transformations are coming through um i think across the board a, a heavy amount of sits in the in the digital space so um, I, as I said already, I look after the university sector across the UK and a huge portion of transformation when we talk about it sits in creating a digital student experience, whether that looks like um, you know online campuses or things like apps and making it more user student friendly. Um, it's the way in which we use student data or information from a, a university perspective and creating systems that all speak to one another. I think instead of having the classic, you know, lots of siloed and, you know, systems that never really bring much value to a university or, or in, indeed the wider space. Um, they're the kind of key ones. I think digital still sits above the rest of people and, and, and process change still kind of feeds into all of that. Um, but I suppose the blanket term will be digital transformation that we're looking after. 
was going to say, so with that kind of, because that, that is a shift within the last few years, isn't it, that move to digital from you know, some of the more traditional things that universities or other higher education type uh, organisations focused on. What does a what does a, a, a candidate who's not necessarily worked in HE before have to do to supercharge their CV then so that you can spot something within that, that candidate that you see actually that might work, that might land here? Really good question because actually there is a lot of, if we're not just to explicitly talk about university or the higher education sector, but it is a really good one to demonstrate historically it was quite a, if you didn't have experience in that industry or very similar, it was quite a tough one to get into because universities I suppose like to think of themselves as very individual when actually there's a lot of crossover and um, not just the skill set but a lot of the time it's all about the stakeholder piece and if we talk about change stakeholder management is probably I would say one of the biggest things that you need to have really good comes on really good personality that kind of allow you to deliver effective change um, and if you were to come from out of the sector it's just about being able to bring forward in your CV your you wonder personality, but two, how good you're effective and effective your ability to communicate is versus just saying stakeholder management or excellent stakeholder engagement skills. Like, can you give an example in an achievement in some of your roles, which I'll talk about more on in, in terms of how you kind of beat the bot, as you might say, um, in your CV, given some achievements, because there you can demonstrate that you maybe turned a really challenging stakeholder who was opposed to a piece of change into someone who was bought on and how you done that. Being really concise and, and clear in your CV and, and comms will no doubt still kind of yearn you into a position of um, demonstrating, I suppose, your ability to be quite good in change in a university environment. And another thing I would say is there is a lot of crossover in the people and the, the stakeholders you, you deal with in a university, if you can kind of just pull them out and, and where you're applying to go into a university, let's say, making that known. So different types of academics you can have or, or people in that kind of, that might be seen as more challenging to, to buy into a programme or a piece of work, demonstrating that you've worked with people similar, not everyone's the exact same. So yeah, it's it's kind of trying to make compares, I think is, is quite a good one. And, and as I said, trying to demonstrate achievements versus just just putting skill sets because it brings it a little bit more to life and in a cv you've only got maybe eight seconds of a scam with twitter you know through it before you make a decision on whether that person's a good fit or not and it's in that you need to really kind of be hard hitting and, that, and that's the challenge too i asked a question on so where we were saying obviously your experience is in he and there's a lot of digital transformation in that sector still um <laughs> I think I can't remember where I'd seen it recently. I think it might have been from UUK, um, but there was an assessment that that universities or the higher education sector as a whole was about ten years behind in terms of digital transformation from other sectors. So, I, I mean, obviously your your experience is more in HE, but you're seeing the same in colleagues that work in other sectors that they're also still moving ahead, or do they have yeah. other priorities in HE? Sort of no, I think I mean don't get me wrong, HE's delayed in its advancements of how it's doing things and it's definitely massively playing a catch-up game but doing so in some more effective than the other but I still think it's it's happening in, in businesses outside of the university sector even in the wider public sector people are still making advancements on their digital products re refining them you know upgrading certain avenues and, and pathways that they use 
going from one system to another, like changing their ERP product offering, that kind of thing, that still is happening. And I think universities are maybe some in some ways doing it for more of what feels like a standstill uh, because they're kicking it off. But I, it still feels effectively the same kind of expectation in terms of overall digital. But yeah, I would say from a university perspective, it's slightly different. And not every university is the exact, in the exact same position. Things like ways of working are still programs that outside of the university world are still being rolled out and kind of re-refined as we try to work out what is the best way to change how we used to work and is actually remote a big piece of a big avenue that's going to become more and more popular from a contracting world absolutely you know the one of the first few questions a contractor will ask is is the role remote and that's you know we're nearly at the into 2023 and that's still not like up there at one of their top priorities. So um, yeah, there's still projects and, and kind of programs and transformation that are still being asked and delivered on across the board. Um, so yeah. So what do you what do you find then is the the do you find are, are the hiring managers or institutions looking for a, a hybrid remote on campus type approach? And I, was I, I suppose the second question to that is 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 the candidate looking for that too, or are they mostly looking for being at home? It, I want to say it depends because it does depend. Um, one, from a hiring manager perspective, if your university has a on-site expectation, or not just university, but your business has an on-site expectation of two days a week, in a change transformation or anything kind of tech related, that's getting pushed back immediately because they probably delivered quite a good amount of work in, in a full lockdown example. And they're thinking, well, actually, if I have to do that, then you know, I, I don't want to work for that business when another business can offer me fully remote or much more flexible offering like one or two days in the office in a month. That's from the, I think, the, you know, the candidate side of kind of flipping that. From a, from a hiring manager perspective, it offers them more opportunities to to cast the net of, of who they can attract to join the organization. If you're a business in a not in central London or an easily commutable location, so you're you're you were used to having a radius, probably what was considered commutable within an hour, let's say. In lockdown, you got the opportunity to cast your net to the to the top of Scotland if you were based in London, because it didn't matter, you weren't really going to see that person. Now we're kind of having to find the balance between the skill set and what's priority, or actually, do we really want to see them on site every other day? And does that, what's the bigger value? I think it depends. Perm, I would understand why the expectation to be on site a couple of days in a month is there because, you know, you're trying to build longer term relationships. You're actually trying to embed yourself into the organization and understand its core values and be able to deliver against them. If your contract, you don't normally have the same buy-in. Yes, you want to deliver a piece of work, but once you've delivered that, the expectation is you move away because your contract there for a period of time. So the buy-in doesn't need to be there, which core means you don't really need to be on site as much. Really interesting. Yeah. Do you see a difference where um, where projects are more people or HR heavy versus technology? Because I, I think I agree with you. I think it depends because I, I cannot see how some projects have to be delivered face to face especially if if they involve a lot of that people change i think yeah um whereas if they're more towards the hard technology side perhaps it's less important to be around and i, I would agree with you there but then there's an element of it let's say if we put someone who's responsible for the change delivery piece on that they're 
you know, one of the big things in change, as I mentioned already, is your personality and your ability to kind of communicate between different types of people. If it's a really heavy-led technology piece of change, the change manager or whoever's responsible for changing that in that organization or that piece of work, it would help them to maybe be on site because someone like this, the business stakeholder who has absolutely no idea what, and I'd probably sit on the business side of having no clue what some of the terminology means and being able, you know, being able to communicate that and, and translate that to, to the business, it'd be helpful if they were there. But don't get me wrong, it's not as much of a prerequisite. I agree, looking at some of the pieces of work I've delivered before, where it's change-led um, and people change-led, having a workshop where you've got two people on as they're dialing in from a Zoom call, three in the room, and you're trying to coordinate both, you don't get the best out of that. You, It's better to do one or the other and not trying to do a mix of both. That's where hybrid, in my opinion, does not really work. Um, and, and so there's an element of like, most people are actually in change. I would say that's probably one of the areas where people are like, yeah, I totally understand why I would need to be on site or be present for a big workshop or things like you know, days of collaboration because they actually make sense and people get more value out of them versus being told come in two days a week but when you come in you might not have any of your stakeholders in that defeats the purpose probably of making that that commute and um, so it's about making it, it it relevant for people and if there's a business need or you know a piece of work that will be delivered more effectively and quickly if you've actually met someone face to face then then fair and like that's probably the, the move forward that people will see and have seen and in that they've decided yeah actually I'm going to do that instead of putting my back up and saying no I'm not coming in it does just effectively move things along quicker makes ideally most people's jobs a little bit easier um I saw something on 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 LinkedIn yesterday and it was quite apt it was like would you rather me call you for two minutes or shall we continue to exchange like 20,000 emails because and it was actually a very valid point where we're kind of gone beyond the days of just picking up the phone and or like we now start to schedule a Teams meeting or a Zoom meeting with people, which actually is 30 minutes, but you really probably could have taken two minutes of their time if you could see them. Um, so it's it's trying to strike the balance. And I think that's like that's not decided yet. And so that's a massive piece of work still happening in, in all industries. I the other thing I think as well is it depends on company culture. Cause so I think if you're if you're used if you're a global organization and you're delivering change across sites or if you're multi-site already. Um, I can imagine you're you're more used to having to collaborate in that way anyway. Um, and it was it's something I found in the pandemic was so oddly, um, whereas before, like working with people on other sites was quite difficult because you'd always need to arrange to meet in person or or the person on the video call was always kind of the poor relation. That kind of flipped and, and it was like, oh, right, actually, this is easier. If everybody's on on a video call, we can do that. But the, the thing that dropped a bit was the people that you were used to seeing in person um, because that, that, that then felt different. I think it's an interesting time and people are still trying to figure out what works. And, and you are right, culture is probably one of the big drivers of what, you know, how and when they come into an office environment and what makes it work. If culture was a driver number, for example, I work in a business that we're in three to four days a week because culture is so important that if we're at home, there's, there is that expectation that maybe the culture won't remain, um, but I, it does depend. I think some some businesses, like I think PwC, were once that announced that they were going to remain fully remote or offer fully remote contracts, which I would never have expected in in a business as big as PwC. But it clearly, I think it was PwC that said that. Um, but yes, yeah, so it does depend. I think it's 
there's a lot there's factors that play into and I guess that's someone someone's in change or to work out which are the key priorities and, and factor them in. With um with culture there, I mean and that that's a nice you know, segue and transition to another question that we had kind of for you, which is around you know preparing for an interview uh, an organization and, and and you know a previous episode Pete refers to tasting the streets, which is kind of a really interesting statement around you know um understanding the culture of an organization. But I guess in terms of preparing for an interview, understanding that culture is important, but what, what else is in there that you would you give advice to a, a candidate to say, right, you're going to go in, this is this is a good way for you to prepare for this, this interview now? I think it sounds really cliche and really obvious, but for yourself, like if you're if you're going in for a change role, right, which is what we're expecting these people to be doing, the reality of it is your personality is what's one day what is essentially going to get you that job and I am currently working a change manager role and I can guarantee you the person who delivers their personality the most is probably going to get the job over their industry experience they're all out and out change managers there's no kind of question about that that's obviously putting them into a position where they're getting an interview and they're all really lovely people but the person on the day who who allows themselves to be themselves will probably be the person who secures interview because if they can see that you have an ability to communicate and, and kind of express yourself well with them and, and be clear and concise in, in your answering of questions and they like and they buy into you then they're probably going to see that translate to the business and who you need to work with and um, so in change I think one of the biggest things you can do is is be yourself and not kind of go stiff as a board and and it is quite tough. Interviews aren't an enjoyable experience for anyone. And they're like being back in school and taking an exam. They're just not, you just want it to be over. But you need to try and find a way to, as I was saying, some of this, find like a common ground early in the conversation. Because if you can kind of get someone onto your level or a level, it allows you to relax and breathe a little bit more. And you're not kind of pent up and stressed. And even on a Zoom call it's, or, you know, an interview on Teams online, it is still the same your body language is still almost we've done enough of them you can still read someone's body language a little bit because you can see their facial expressions if they're still engaged with you you can watch them dial off and look at other screens and then you know you've lost them so it's all about being yourself and really traditional and and classic but it never fails especially if you're trying to be clear and concise is using the star technique which is situation task action and results and it's one of the easiest ways to demonstrate I suppose your your ability and change versus you know maybe other roles where you can get technical it's a lot more about actually showing what you have achieved previously how, you know what your your personal um, involvement in that was what you've done to do so and then what the positive and ideally positive outcome um, and result of that kind of piece of work was that's a really good way of you know doing it and and one other thing I would say is if you can and you can get enough detail and, and the if this allows for both contract and firm if you can get more enough detail on the piece of work that you're going to be delivering change again so the program being able to put yourself in the program and um, per se so being able to like almost we'll say and I would do this and this is how like knowing that you, if this role was yours what would you do and how would you go about it because it allows then the hiring manager whoever's interviewing you to, to also be in that vision with you so a lot of the time it's kind of creating creating scenes and, and having them take you on you know going on a journey with you and that I think allows them to to see you in the role and as I said um they're kind of some of the key I think the key tips in an interview 
um, for, which applies to really anything, but I think in change roles, it really is important to, 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 to hold them in. Do you find that um, we are drifting, maybe drifting is the right word, drifting back into a face-to-face interview space or are we hanging on to, to, to teams for the foreseeable? So funny you mention that. We have found, and, and I think I mentioned to you in, in at the start about like offers not being accepted because of counters and, and things like that. We've seen that in that in the detail of then the offers that haven't been accepted, it's because they've kept it all online. And this is this is explicitly probably more in the permanent market, which I think I've mentioned before about how important it is to kind of keep culture and embedding in. If you don't have any process in, or any part of the interview process in a face-to-face where possible, we find the candidates aren't as bought in and then all of a sudden they're actually more susceptible to counter offers or maybe an offer that comes in face-to-face. It's not everyone's decision. Not everyone wants to do a face-to-face, but I think on perm and definitely on kind of senior perm appointments or anything in that world, it's quite important to meet someone face-to-face from a candidate experience and the client because if you're going to expect them to come to the office or to the building or wherever it is, you, you knew you used to always, that was used to buy you in. If it was a horrendous building and everyone was really rude when you walked in the door, you were never going to take that job no matter how much it paid or whatever. But now it's like, actually, if I like the people as much as I like the package, it makes my decision a lot easier um, or even just meet senior hiring manager a couple of people that I know personally that have moved into new roles where there's not really an on-site requirement have had their hiring manager kind of come and meet them wherever it's mutual if there's no you know coming to London isn't surprising you live up in Newcastle or whichever you know this find in the middle ground because you buy it from someone when you meet them so yeah well kind of on those lines I've found I don't know, maybe this is just a product of where I'm working, but um, the the shift recently for me has been away from more structured kind of every, every um, I was going to say contestant, not contestant, candidate. <laughs> candidate. Um, yeah. <laughs> every yeah, uh, like gladiators or something. Everybody gets asked the same question. They're all scored. Um, but we seem to have moved. Well, I'm not saying that's not there, but but that now it's it's seeming to move more towards conversations and, and trying to get pers- people's personalities. And I I wonder whether that's partly because we're doing so much more re- remote recruitment um, that you, you want to. I don't know. There's something about going into a, a video call where it's just like stilted. Um, have you done that? Yes. Have you not? And you need that kind of stuff around the edges, which perhaps you would have got, um, like you say, when you meet people in person, mm. you kind of, I used you, to do You miss that. out on the lift chat, don't you? Exactly. Yeah. I used to, you'd have somebody there to meet them. And then they were the most important part of the interview process. <laughs> what were they really like when you brought them up like to the meeting room, that kind of thing. So I just wondered whether you've seen that um, shift to more informal conversations elsewhere. So it depends on kind of the role sometimes or even the organisation. They kind of lead the way. But I would say on both contract and firm, um, for anything of a good duration, if it's contract in terms of project line, there tends to be like an informal, maybe first call. And it is literally informal. And if it's perm, they sometimes do it after. But I've seen a lot more in perm being done kind of at the early stages. It is a screening call, I would say, from them to just just really quickly check do they have the basic competencies before they put them through a formal interview. Um, but there is a lot more 
trying to gauge someone's personality I'm doing it at the moment moment for another u- university and they're doing just with the hiring manager she's like if they've got 10-15 minutes I'll give them a quick call because it's actually helping with perm and HE get them bought in because the you know you have to wait for things to close and then you have to go through an interview process and in the current market that good candidate may have got two offers by the time they actually get to your interview and then you are trying to really you're pushing your luck in some cases so it's getting them bought in early doors and that works and on contract it actually is quite a nice way typically contract interviews aren't very formal and um, there is an element of yeah understanding do you have basic competencies that can deliver the role they'll give you more insight into the program and then kind of ask you to essentially correlate your experience and deliver some really good star examples of where you've um, done it before and then it's a little bit softer perm is traditionally as we all know a little bit more rigid and and it has more requirements of, you know, do you fit everything versus contract being like, if you fit three of the five, you probably have a good shot of, of securing that role. Um, so, yeah, it, it's organisation led on that one. But I would say there is a good mix now of people doing like informal chats um, ahead of the process kicking royally off. So you really know if it's worth investing your time from a candidate and for a client, whether or not they need to, you know, get anything lined up for having a counter offer or if they're going to really push the salary kind of thing so it gives you good insight great we're nearly out of time i think so unless chris was there anything else you wanted to ask i can cut you off i i, I really want to talk about beat the bot okay go on oh, yeah. i really want to talk about beat the bot <laughs> well it's because it sounds really done. cool doesn't it, it does. beat the bot. But, i know it but... feels like we're going to post the game show and it's but it, is a, it is a thing right and i and i see a lot of this stuff on linkedin uh, on twitter uh, when we were a little bit more um um you know able to go around the scene on terms of the talks and conferences and stuff like that it's that mm-hmm. serendipitous chat in the hallways with people who were getting you know you know not getting through the bot so to speak and, and people asking what are they doing how are you getting through that you know what, what's what's your tips to them okay what you're saying is is it a real thing i'm pretty sure it is but assuming it is, it is how, how do you beat it's- it so I think what they're talking when you talk about the bot, it's like people's search engines that they look for when they're looking for a role, right? So I'm hiring for a change manager. What are the key things that make a change manager, apart from having worked in change as a change manager? Some In some organizations, it will be having a qualification in change. Does it always help you? If you have it, it absolutely needs to be in your CV. And, and what we expect is to see it, you know, not just at the very bottom, you know, putting it in your in your about you piece or your profile because that's um it's like is it like seo it allows it to bring your cv more to the front because you've got it in your cv a little bit more skill like typical change manager responsibilities not just having it really high level that actually i have no idea what you've delivered in any single role you've had so having kind of your responsibilities in your role and under that your key achievements or bringing all your key achievements to like your first page so in terms of structure, which allows you to kind of cram in all the buzzwords that get picked up when we talk about this bot that you, you know, people are looking to try and be. It's having all the buzzwords littered through your CV. So you're not just saying once I'm a change manager and then not really bringing anyone into the depths of what you've delivered and change. And so I would always say for, it also is really clear and concise if you have this structure, but by all means, it's not, um, it's not gospel, so you don't have to stick to it if you have a jazzier preference. It's having an about you profile, which kind of sums up 
the type of person you are, the kind of skills and qualifications, the industry experience, or if you're applying to a particular organization, you've actually worked in it for some time, you've got really good understanding, given a really short summary, I would say nothing more than four or five lines. It's not um, it's not a covering statement or anything that it needs to be an A4 page. I really like and it and it and most clients feedback that it's really hard hitting. I'm talking about, you know, we've, we've got that eight seconds to review a CV. Your first page is almost got is almost that eight seconds in one. So you want it to be hard hitting. So I always say have a key skills or areas of expertise, however you want to address it. In there, you have your qualifications again, mentioning that you've got um, whichever it is, you've got um, change management, if you've got project management in there, kind of stakeholder engagement, management of, of different things like de demonstrating benefit realization, all of the buzzwords and, and any sort of technologies you've worked on, the types of change you've delivered, transformation as a word sometimes helps in types of transformation you've worked. It can be like, I would, I, I tend to see mine going into three columns, at least five, six on e in each column. Like there's, there's a lot of words you can pull from a really strong CV that demonstrate kind of you've got all that experience. And it's not, we're not talking having to be in the industry for, for 10 plus years. You get a lot of that quite early on. It's how much you then have an expertise in it that grows through the years of, of, of kind of working in change. And then key achievements, if you want to bunch them to, to the front. So that's where I'm talking about where we said being able to out, you know, if you've not got the industry experience, which can also help, actually you've got similar stakeholder engagement, some of the positive pieces of change you've delivered and the successes you've had. Bring all that to the front and then your CV underneath, whatever that looks like, can be things like where you've worked, how long you've worked there, your key responsibilities, kind of highlights, that kind of thing. And in that all is not just one or two words. It's like sentences, bullet-pointed sentences, again, demonstrating and bringing the key words through your CV. If you've got change in your CV, 20 times you're doing far better than someone who mentions changing their cv 10 times and it's only because they've put it as their job title and they've said i'm a change manager at the stop or at the start they're kind of the 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 tricks i would say to kind of big but is how many times do you bring the keywords into your cv because that's how it's searched it's all done on certain keywords it's typically how they do it or job title so if you don't put it in there you're not uh, a colleague of mine once said, "If you if you don't buy a ticket for the lottery, you can't win. So if you don't stick it in there, you can't put it forward." I think that's uh, such good advice, Michaela. And and just before then, uh, we we wrap up. Uh, give us your closing pitch about why people should come to you. Oh, oh well. One, um, I think important to note about the fosses, we're not just recruitment, and I think that's the expectation. As I said at the start, we are solutions. Um, services business so we've got more than just recruitment going on future proof is something i'm a massive advocate for ucl as university have, have taken on 20 associates which are essentially helping them with their delivering their digital strategy and it's all about bringing in diverse talent of tomorrow um, and we work to train and develop them and then deploy them into a business and i think that really differentiates us from pretty much any competitor in the market um, and which makes it really, really nice place to work. But also our three core values are care, ambition and humility. And as a team, we all collectively show that and we all care a lot about each other, but also the people we work with. Um, humility is one that in recruitment doesn't always come very often, but I think it's fair to say in you know, a business is big and there's much we are growing, we still demonstrate it. Um, and we're all pretty ambitious about what we're doing. Future Proof and, and other areas of our business kind of are a, you know, an example of that where we're not just 
content being just recruitment we're like actually there's a lot more we can do and a lot more we can serve and help our clients and candidates with that we're kind of allowing ourselves to grow into so um it's a really great place and I think you know we work with some really amazing clients and it gives us a really good platform to kind of help people in in work but also wider wider than so and yeah by all means reach out <laughs> well that's great we're, we're tag you on all of our posts Michaela oh, so thank you. Uh, we'll we'll make sure that uh, if anybody is looking uh, either to have uh, some support in resourcing some roles or anyone who's looking for a new role yes, they'll either see way. you Either way, make sure they, they reach out, it'll be great. Thank Before you. Before so we much. finish, I, I just have to say so on our on our webpage, we list for whatever reason, we put our favorite foods. And the, the literally the last conversation I had with Chris was about how much he hates potatoes. Um Michaela spotted that uh, and said that uh I, I mean I, I don't know want to put words in your mouth, but because you're Irish, you love potatoes. I honestly, yeah, it was basically it's I, it's it's a it's just typical, isn't it? I am Irish, and I honestly have such. It's an it's not an obsession, but like there's just nothing that doesn't go well with any sort of potato, and I can't believe you don't like potato. I have a few friends who don't like mash, and it's like my favorite. And I think does that question our friendship because I'm obsessed with having really good creamy mash, and when I go out into a restaurant, I'll like critique it like horrendously. I'm like, oh, it's a bit lumpy, not enough salt. I feel like a referee. It, it is mash that's it is mash that starts my dislike. That's where it all comes from. So I it's don't a know why. Thing to a story. But do you like the banana? Then, then, like, I guess it's similar. I don't. I don't know. I don't know where. I mean, there must. There's obviously some deep rooted potato. We, we, I don't think we've got time to go into it, but <laughs> you should try mash again. It depends. Some places, you, if you get a bad mash, it is. I, I went to a, a restaurant once. I probably shouldn't say, but just in case, you know, they they reach out. And it was cold in the middle, and I was like, "Oh, that makes me feel oh, really uncomfortable." It's because microwave, like, doesn't it? Yeah, and I thought, <laughs> "Oh no, it's so simple to boil some mash and chuck some butter and salt and whatever into it." But either way. Either way, I'll, one day if we, uh, if I see you some in person, I'll uh, convince Bring you. Bring him some mash. He needs it. We'll go somewhere room. proper for some mash. We'll go get some yeah. mash from somewhere proper, somewhere who knows, somewhere that knows how to make it. <laughs> exactly. I'll, I'll have a, I have a list of places that has some good mash. We can, um, we can brainstorm over a, a, a lunch with some mash. Right. That's definitely uh, we're doing that. Let's finish there. A, a, a curious note to finish it all. Thank you very <laughs> much. <laughs> Thank you, Michaela. Thank, Thank, Thank you so much. And remember, if you're listening to like our Instagram, follow us on LinkedIn, or you can visit our website, which will be in the links in our post.